You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Danelle Gutara Cordero, a lecturer in African American Studies and Gender and Sexuality Studies at Princeton University. Dr. Gutara Cordero specializes in the intellectual history of the Caribbean and the Atlantic world, and her research and teaching interests include the topics of scientific racism, slavery, gender, sexuality, and colonialism. Her first book titled, She's Weeping, An Intellectual History of Racialized Slavery and Emotions in the Atlantic World, was published by the Cambridge University Press in 2021. At Princeton, Dr. Gutara Cordero is currently a faculty advisor at Forbes College and is affiliated with the program in Latin American Studies and the Global Health Program. In this conversation, we discuss her book, She is Weeping, where Dr. Gutara Cordero provides a new understanding of racialized emotions in the Atlantic world and how these discourses proved instrumental to the rise of slavery and racial capitalism, racialized sexual violence, as well as the expansion of the carceral state. Dr. Gutara Cordero has requested that we add a trigger warning to the following conversation in light of our explicit and frank discussion of slavery. So we're here today with Dr. Danelle Gutara Cordero. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. So before we delve Thank into you. your book, um, I wanted to start by asking you the origins of this project. So a sort of invitation to narrate us into the project, how you came into it, what sort of concerns, personal, ethical, and philosophical that drew you to the questions in She is Weeping. So why this project and why now? Yes, um, thank you so much for the question. And also thank you so much for this lovely invitation. Um, I very, very much appreciate the opportunity um, to speak with you today. So my... um, the book uh, it respond, it responds to my long-term research. Um, I had been pursuing long-term research about the intellectual history of scientific racism during the 18th, 19th, and 20th century. And this long-term research had shown me that scientific anti-Blackness has always prioritized the perpetration of emotional oppression through the racialization of emotions in order to legitimize racialized enslavement and also colonial exploitation. And it was through this persistence that I noticed in the primary sources and also through the vast repercussions of these racialist discourses of differentiated emotions, you know, that's what led me to further study the connections between institutional anti-blackness and scientific intellectual production. 
I therefore decided to pursue this project um, that, that ultimately argues that emotional justice and freedom are the key to conversations about anti-racism and reparations. So thank you. I think that's also what drew me to your book because I haven't um, read much scholarship that dealt with looking at, you know, um, slavery from an emotional perspective. So I was like, oh, I'm, I'm quite curious about it. Can you also talk to us a little bit about the, the title? So why she is weeping? Yes. Well, the title is actually connected to a bit of creative writing I incorporated in the book. Each chapter has a fragment of creative writing. But the title also represents what the book explores and what the book advocates for. Um, The book explores the intellectual history of the racialization of emotions in which Blackness has been constructed as emotionally impulsive in which Black emotions have been antagonized and weaponized against the Black self. And the book also advocates for the right of all to weep without scrutiny, without being subjected to the genocidal violence of emotional policing. The right to weep without policing is something so significant and yet still so unattainable to many. Um, so that's what the the title aims to convey. Thank you. Um, you also state how there's a lack of debate about the intellectual history of racialized slavery as an emotional economy. So can you talk to a little, um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Um, so why do you think there is this lack of debate and also Um, I would appreciate if you could break down this terminology, emotional economy. Well, in in general, the the erasure of the stories and the voices of people of color pervade all areas of historiography, um, which is something that is very blatant, even within the context of our own studies um, and our own development as as scholars. Um, So this is something that pervades all areas of historiography and all areas of scholarship. And it is one more gap in the context of the overall institutional silencing of black histories and of black studies in historiography, in higher education curricula and in public memory. In terms of the concept of emotional economy, the way that I engage with that concept in my book is in reference to how discourses of emotion serve as the foundation of racial capitalism and racialized exploitation, um, which is truly the, the crux of the book. Thank you. That, that, I really like that breakdown because that's the terminology you put forth throughout the book. Um, so that really helps in um, the other theories that we're going to talk about. So you also spend a quite a bit of time talking about the intellectual history and the origins of how things came to be. I really liked, like the first two chapters and how that how you talked about it. So can you talk to us a bit more on the emotional justification of slavery, such as how the emotions often enslaved, which is set by the Greco-Roman philosophy, 
is they're considered like emotional weakness. Um, they're really, you really put this theory and how um, the Greco-Romans looked at emotions by an enslaved person related to femininity and weakness. Um, and then also you speak about Aristotle and how much of it was really driven and justified by religious belief. Yes, thank you so much. So both Aristotelian and Platonic philosophy engendered parallelisms in the um, overall description of power. Um, so power was described through dichotomies, dichotomies such as reason and emotion, the soul and the body, uh, man and woman, quote unquote, um, father and child, the quote unquote master and the enslaved, the king and the state. Um, it was through these dichotomies that an argument arose of, or, or it was through these dichotomies that the following you know, argument was legitimized, which was the argument that only people that could govern the self could then govern the others. And therefore, emotions were constructed as a corruptive, destructive force in a very strategic way to normalize uh, the oppression of the enslaved and the oppression of emotional others, quote unquote. So Greco-Roman philosophy normalized the institution of slavery by projecting the link between the body and the soul as a political one, the soul that must govern over the body. And it is these souls that are able to govern over the body. You know, there are those that are able to commodify and exploit bodies, quote unquote. Um, when of course, you know, it's it was a way to depersonalize people. So this link between the body and the soul that was projected as a political one was presented as one that should strive for the regulation of emotions. And again, this regulation had to be, you know, had to mimic the rule of the father over his child, the sovereignty of the king over the state, and therefore also the absolute subjugation of the enslaved by a, man, by a master, quote unquote. So Greco-Roman philosophy built an emotional economy grounded on the corporeal authority over the quote-unquote naturally enslaved for being emotionally different, quote-unquote, and at the same time, quote-unquote, biologically identifiable. Both Plato and Aristotle used this rationalization to spread ideas about quote-unquote quality of men. Um, in other words, bodies that are recognizably distinct. Um, and it's something that spread through Rico-Roman philosophy. Um, and this set a racialist, prece racialist precedent for the future biological hierarchies of scientific racism. The second chapter of my book is fully dedicated to how the intellectual history of races of scientific racism 
continued and escalated this legacy in the 18th century by proclaiming the emotional deficiency of racialized people, particularly um, targeting blackness. My book argues that this scientific racialization of emotions has fueled the genocidal policing of black community, that it fueled it has fueled it then, and that it also fuels this genocidal policing of black communities now. Um, and again, that, that is uh, the crux of, of my argument about racial capitalism and also carceral landscapes. So is this how, um, this is what you mean when you put the theory forth of slavery to passion and how that built an emotional economy grounded on controlling the enslaved for being emotionally different? Yes, indeed. In the ancient Greek or Roman world, the concept of slavery to passions was used to both relativize and legitimize the social practice of slavery. And this discourse of slavery to passions uh, imagined all people as potentially being enslaved by their passions, again, as a way to relativize slavery. But this discourse also proclaimed that enslaved people were definitely enslaved by deviant, unruly emotions, by an irrevocable lack of self-governance that had to be tamed, that had to be regulated. Therefore, it relativized slavery through spreading the idea that anybody could fall into the potentiality of slavery, but always conceptualizing the quote-unquote unbridled uh, passions of the enslaved, quote-unquote, again, I emphasize on those quotation marks, um, they were conceptualizing that notion as innate, as absolutely um, an, an, an absolute inclination um, not even inclination, and an, an absolute determinate um, trait of being enslaved. And so therefore, um, the deterministic language that was being used about the emotions of enslaved people uh, made, you know, served as the premise of the eventual rise of racialized slavery. Now, with the rise of Christianity, the discourse of slavery to passions persisted through the notion of slavery to sin, right? The discourse of slavery to sin, in which the presumed emotional deviance of the enslaved then became the paradigm of sinfulness. Furthermore, the figurative language about slavery in biblical texts sets a precedent for the omnipresence of emotional policing because of the emphasis placed on the omnipresence of a God that watches over the emotional responses of enslaved people to their masters, quote unquote, expecting humility and expecting emotional obedience and also expecting emotional failure. Um, so the racialization of slavery was premised on these notions, both the slavery, the notion of slavery to passions and, and the notion of slavery to sins. And these, you know, the actual racialization of slavery 
in turn intensified and globalized the impact of these ancient and medieval discourses. So thank you for talking about that and also combining um, the quote-unquote slavery to passions and quote-unquote slavery to sin, um, because that really, both of them resulted in like this global hierarchy of feelings, right? So you also talk about um, how during the post-emancipation era, Black communities longed for political citizenship and economic um, mobility. So, but these were disregarded by structures of power and considered emotional weakness. So can you talk a little bit about how ancient Roman texts diffused the conception of the enslaved person as prone to passion and weakness of character, especially, you know, you did speak about prone to passion, but this weakness of character and this inability to govern oneself. Yes. So before I I respond to this question, I would like to emphasize and, and also clarify that I use quotation marks when writing the words, the post-emancipation mm-hmm. era throughout my book, because abolition, I argue my book, you know, as many argue that abolition has not happened. Mm-hmm. And as discussed in my book, contemporary slavery is still very much racialized. So the final chapter of my book is actually dedicated to mm-hmm. contemporary slavery. Um, so I wanted to make sure that I mentioned that. Um, but the quote-unquote post-emancipation era was mostly preoccupied with how to set limitations mm-hmm. to freedom that enable the preservation of racialized sources of exploitative labor and thus the to, to, to maintain the capitalistic submission the, the capitalistic subjugation of you know uh, black communities um, and people of color in general so the those who were deemed to be quote unquote formerly enslaved were still you know um, systemically subjected to economic exploitation throughout the Atlantic world. And at the same time, quote-unquote former enslavers during the post-emancipation era, quote-unquote, consistently would affirm in in the primary sources, you know, that I looked into that the era, quote-unquote, the post-emancipation era, quote-unquote, had proven their anti-abolitionist discourses that, you know, were, you know, they had for a long time claimed that free Black communities would not know what to do with liberty or to comprehend the quote-unquote value of work. So therefore, Black longings for non-exploitative work, for citizenship, for economic mobility, were constructed and weaponized by white elites as emotional irrationalities, quote-unquote, against the capitalistic 
value of work, quote unquote, which was, of, work, of course, the work of white selection, right? It was the, the structures that were being set by um, the white elites, which, you know, their discourses claimed that the that black emotionality quote unquote prove their predictions about the presumed failures of abolition um that it served as evidence of racialized emotional capriciousness and these discourses were used to propel the intensification of emotional policing and carceral punishment. It's quite amazing how um, <laughs> things were just manipulated, right, to serve a certain purpose for a group of people, um, a, a way of justifying slavery through any means necessary. So that was just, um, and I think one of the things that stuck with me in your book, I remember the justification of how um, temperature to temperament, that link that was made um, in terms of like coming from um, high temperature places where it's really hot, which was linked to um, being highly temperament and not being able to control your emotions, therefore justifying, um, you know, being enslaved. I was like, wow, that's quite the manipulation, right? So, um, yeah. So um, you also speak about the Greco-Roman world's concoction of an emotional economy where um, the enslaved were, and, and I'm saying mentioning this from your book, so quote, the enslaved were never allowed to be children as children or adults as adults, unquote. And, um, you know, these were degrading and put in a place of permanent infancy that set the framework for uninterrupted economic exploitation of the other. So while working on this project, what do you see as possible ways of interrupting this emotional narrative that is focused um, on the West? Yes, well, the conceptualization of emotional otherness fuels the rise um, and the perpetuation of racial capitalism and the carceral landscape to this day. Um, it is not in the interest or profit of racial capitalism for there to be an end to racialized emotional policing. But the narrative of racialized emotionality has been interrupted and is disrupted every single day. The third chapter of my book discusses the intellectual history of narratives written by the enslaved, the intellectual history of the Haitian Revolution, um, etc. So just as there has been historical erasure, genocidal violence, and intellectual appropriation premised on white emotional supremacy, there has been perpetual Black intellectual production and activism that has denounced eugenicist emotional policing, um, overall white emotional supremacy, as I mentioned, and also, as, as you mentioned, the racialization of, of childhood, um, which is something that is particularly impacted by what you mentioned in terms of the, the way that 
the idea of temperature has been historically used. Um, and, you know, this refers to the way that the current of scientific racism, um, known as geographical determinism, has historically constructed that uh, people from hotter climates are, quote unquote, uh, more emotionally impulsive. Um, and also the idea that heat um, is one that, you know, that, that heat propels an earlier maturity, quote unquote, which has had devastating effects for the history of racialized slavery, for the history of medical anti-blackness. Um, and as I mentioned, every single day, um, there has been vast intellectual production that aims to precisely denounce the profound impact that it has in our contemporary, in an actual contemporary world, even though the um, structures of power project racism as quote-unquote more subtle today, even though there's this projection of a colorblind post-racial world. Thank you. Um, I also really like how you mentioned that today's public discourse about racism vividly visualizes the fear and guilt of white privilege instead of the visible structural hate toward blackness. So can you expand more on that and this emotional imagery that you put forth, which is controlled by the capitalistic order, right, of ensuring white happiness is always kept in place and maintained? Yes, so there are so many examples to this. Um, and one key example of this fascination with white emotionality um, that in turn is used and weaponized as a way to silence um, black voices. Um, an example of this is the concept of white guilt in itself. The concept of white guilt appropriates the language of trauma in order to center the conversation about black oppression on white emotionality. It just completely stops the conversation, quote unquote, or aims to, it doesn't, it aims to stop the conversation um, by moving, shifting the focus um, towards uh, white emotionality in response to, quote unquote, you know, quote unquote, in response to, and not really in response to, uh, mm. black oppression. And even I would add as a scholar that there is no such thing as collective white guilt. Um, if there was an actual, you know, emotional response, actual collective emotional response and actual concern about Black well-being, the world would be very, very, very different. And our recent history would be very different. Um, so as a scholar, I would say that there is no such thing as white guilt because there, there isn't 
an actual, there isn't any evidence of actual collective concern for Black emotionality that doesn't go beyond the performative. Um, but another example of this um, is, was, is just the, the case study of um, social media during summer of 2020. Um, there was such an emphasis placed, such a focus, such a spotlighting of white emotionality during that time. Um, because the projection was that summer of 2020 represented an emotional reckoning for white people. That there were being conversations that were being held that were uncomfortable for white people, right? And even if we deconstruct that, the idea that conversations about racism and structural anti-blackness are uncomfortable for white people instead of for the people that are actually affected by that painful history says so much about how in every single instance that there are conversations about racism and public discourse that aim to disrupt power in some way, we see how structures of power aim to shift that conversation back towards a way for that to be weaponized and also for that to be used for the profit of racial capitalism. Um, and we very soon saw how there were even social media posts where people were uh, uh, where you know there were uh, white media and like social influencers talking about allyship fatigue, you know that says how much it was through the lens of this idea of emotional reckoning of whiteness that the story was being told, right? When at the same time um, there was an actual you know activist struggle. There were the actual Black Lives Matter movement protests that were being held, that were being subjected to the full-blown violence of carcerality, right? Um, but in this um, representation of this emotional reckoning, the idea was that the actual emotional reckoning was centered on, on the notion that White people were finding out that racism exists. It was at that level. You would see so many, you know, people, you know, uh, you know, there were like even like white bloggers sharing like the book list. Everybody was like buying books. Suddenly <laughs> they had to educate themselves, they were saying. Um so people suddenly had to educate themselves about racism existing. And people were buying books and showing the books that they bought as a, as a way to represent their quote-unquote ally, allyship mm -hmm. to the movement. Um, the act of buying a book became like that was it that was the expectation that people just had to educate themselves but the you know this centering of white emotionality leaves us with the question of you know educating themselves about what 
when structural hate against blackness is so visible, institutional anti-blackness is so visible, right? And we yet we see that every single day there's a discourse that white elites are not able to visualize or are not able to assess their own privilege because they've always lived within privilege so they're not able to identify it and they need to buy books right they need to buy books they need to read right um which you know says a lot because number one you know it's it's the idea that white elites that spend their whole time in economically prohibitive spaces never wonder why the few people of color in the room, if there are any, are tokenized, and how the majority of the time that they see people of color is actually within the context of less economic access, right? So this is something that is so visible. It is so visible and it is so blatant and it is so obvious, yet it is completely minimized, right? And at the same time, what I find, I know that I'm repeating that people are buying books. It's just that it's just so irritating, but... Something very also, you know, that, that says a lot about how this centering of white emotions allows for the creation of mythologies. Um, historically, you know, whiteness has had a monopoly over not only, you know, uh, institutional education, quote unquote, not the, not the act of education itself, but I'm talking about institutional and quote unquote selective education. But also they have had a monopoly on institutional ideas about who is educated and who isn't, right? But within this monopoly, there's this, again, actual monopoly over the idea of being educated and the idea of, you know, having this, you know, intellectual um, advancement through education um and again all of the discourses of that historically have been used um that have been criminal that have criminalized blackness and that have marginalized blackness in academia right so there's this there has been this historically this historical monopoly over who is educated and who is qualified yet when it's about racism White people can claim ignorance. And there even, you know, there's even this projection of whiteness as being, knowing exactly how to educate themselves in ways that are, that follow politics of respectability, in ways that are even supposed to be applauded. So where I'm going with this is that there are many examples that we see every day on how even in conversations surrounding anti-blackness um media social media just media in general um public discourse um politics economics education will consistently um shift 
the conversation towards white emotionality. Thank you. That was um, that was really powerful, and I really liked um, how you framed white guilt, right? Because if it was guilt, then we would be having a different conversation right now. Um, but so, really, thank you for that. Now, readers take what they will from books and um, part of the anxiety, but also real life of published work, as I've been told by my professors, (laughs) that um, you can't control exactly what people will take away from a book, right? So when you were writing this book, did you have a specific imagination of, you know, the reader and what did you want or what would you want them to take away from this book? Um, any new ideas or orientations, curiosities, altered sensibilities? Um, what did you have in mind? Yes, so um, to be honest, I have very low self-esteem in every realm of my life. Um, and um and I'm actually very nervous. I have been very nervous this whole podcast. Um, but again, as I mentioned, I have a very, very low self-esteem. And, and this includes, you know, low self-esteem in my work as a writer and as a scholar. So I find it somewhat difficult to visualize the relationship of a reader with my work and with my words. Um, but what I focused on as a, as a writer is on making sure that my book was a safe space, Um, just as my classroom is a safe space. I hope that my book, I very much hope that my book represents a safe space of validation of the urgency of the struggle for emotional freedom for readers that have been affected by this painful history. So I will have to say that reading the first 20 pages of your book, that was the first thing that I got. And I was like, okay, maybe it's too simple. <laughs> it's like, maybe I need to further dive in, but... I do remember stopping, and um, it was very clear, at least to me, that we've weaponized emotions, and that's not right, right? And then, of course, you continue to break it down, but I felt safe. Like, you know, I, I could think about a lot of books came into mind about how, especially if I think about the Black female and how emotions are weaponized against Black women, but I did get the sense that however one feels or, you know, considering the history that we've laid forth in the past 38 minutes, um, our emotions are valid. So emotions are, those three words were like the first, it was the first thing that I received. Um, And then I was like, maybe it's too simple, but I'm like, maybe it's not. And then of course you break down, why do we think it's too simple or really why has it been so um, deemed that like wrong, right? Um, but I would like to say that your message was received, <laughs> and I definitely did. I did feel safe, um, 
And it kind of did make me look at things a little bit differently in terms of um, my personal life and how we look at emotions, how we look at other people's emotions and what we deem right or wrong, but really giving people that emotional freedom. So thank you, um, even whether it's in the walls of academia, <laughs> but really applying this to um, outside really does help. So I, I appreciate your book for that. Oh, thank you so much. You have made my whole day. I, I very, very much appreciate your kind, kind words. Thank you so and much. And so to return that question to you, um, how do you walk away from this book, um, this process of writing and editing and refining work? Um, to, you know, it does change you. So where does this book leave you? Um, and also in terms of next projects, um, what what's next? <laughs> Yes. Um, well, this is my first book. So I felt like I was learning to write a book while writing it. Um, and this is something that will always mean a lot to me in my work as a scholar. Um, I had, of course, you know, written my doctoral dissertation, but this was my first actual book project. And um it was very challenging to write. Um, you know, it's it's it starts with antiquity and it ends in the contemporary world. It aims also to be a history of the Atlantic world. Um, so that you know felt massive while I was writing it, um, and in terms of. Oh, I'm so thinking in Spanish, so <laughs> I hope that I'm explaining this. But what I'm trying to say is that it felt like a, like a challenge as a scholar to be able to encompass that argument through my, you know, exp uh, analysis of, you know, discourse analysis of primary sources and that my argument actually did it justice to that history. So... Um, so this is something that will always mean a lot to me. Um, and this project and the questions that are explored within it are central to my current anti-racist scholarship and also my pedagogy. Um, and what I mean with my pedagogy is the way that I conceptualize student well-being as the priority of reparative higher education. Um, so because of this, I plan to continue pursuing the topic of the impact of scientific racism in contemporary anti-Blackness in my future scholarship and research. Um, because, of course, as I have mentioned, um, I uh, this, this was, you know, the... Through my research, I was able to establish connections between the then and the now in a way that, um, you know, um, allowed me to craft an argument that emphasized the vast repercussions of scientific racism today. And so I want to pursue this in my future scholarship and research, and that is precisely what my current research is, is focusing on. 
Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Donnell Guitaro-Cardero. We really appreciate having you on, and um, we'd really like to have you back on again. So <laughs> I'll be looking forward to um, your next publication. No pressure. Take your time. This is it's really more about the emotional well-being, as we talked about. <laughs> um, but thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I again, I'm I'm so grateful for um, the incredible opportunity to talk about my book, and uh, so grateful for you to, uh, even though I was very nervous the whole time, for you to make me feel, you know, so comfortable. And I take this opportunity to um, send my good wishes to anybody listening, and just send my good wishes, um, you know, for health and, and happiness.